This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi again, everybody. Welcome back on this episode of 30 with Murdy, a very powerful conversation with former big league pitcher Todd Stottlemyre. Todd pitched 14 years in the major leagues and won 138 games, won two World Series rings with the Toronto Blue Jays, and was a second-generation major leaguer, son of Yankees great and former Yankees pitching coach, the late Mel Stottlemyre. Todd had a successful career by many standards, but as you will hear in his story, it wasn't always a happy journey. Obstacles, both personal and professional along the way, the saddest and most devastating of which shaped him for years to come, the death of his younger brother Jason to leukemia when Todd was 15, Jason was 11. The guilt and anger left inside Todd, who was a bone marrow donor to his brother before Young Jason's body succumbed. Those are very strong forces in Todd's life, and only after counseling and self-examination was he able to reconcile his feelings and move to a healthier place in his life. All of his story is told in a new book he's written called The Observer, a modern fable on mastering your thoughts and emotions by Todd Stottlemyre. It is written as a fictitious story about a successful but troubled 30-something businesswoman whose father was a famous baseball player. With financial and emotional failure knocking her down, she has to find her way back up. It is the story of Todd Stottlemyre told in a different way. The Observer comes out later this month, available anywhere books are sold. You can find direct links at toddofficial.com. This conversation is a lot about Todd's story and how it is told through the book. It is about success and about loss and about family, and it is different than all Almost every other interview I've ever done. Here now is my conversation with former big league pitcher and author of The Observer, Todd Stottlemyre. Todd, the first thing I want to ask you is when you wrote The Observer, you wrote it as a fictional story when I have a feeling that you probably could have written a, a typical autobiography, a memoir of an athlete. You have a very recognizable name, a family name, a rich history in baseball. And you could have told your story with all the elements to it in a very real way. You chose to do it differently. Why? Well, I think, first of all, I wanted it to be more relatable to more people, men and women. And actually, the main character, oddly enough, is a woman. And that woman really is carrying out a lot of my true life events, just like you say, because a lot of the things... Um, that this main character goes through is what I went through actual some of those things were actual events I went through in my life and it was also a way for me to get really vulnerable and really tell the story of the character and not hold anything back you know so many times as especially as athletes you know we sometimes tell the story that we want those other people the media and the fans what we want them to hear 
not necessarily always the truth. I mean, I mean, no one wants to say as an athlete, wow, I'm really struggling and I'm, I'm this or that. You know, we, we have this persona that we do. Well, in this book, I wanted to escape all of that. I wanted to get really, really vulnerable, but I also wanted it to be relatable. And the way I can make it relatable is, is to build it into character form. See, I didn't want it to be like someone to say, oh, yeah, Todd, but remember who your father was, remember where you grew up, remember who you got to hang out with. I wanted to erase all that. I wanted to make sure that someone could apply the book, not just read the book, not just enjoy the book. Um, my mission for this book is, is for change and because I had to change. And I was this this book is really about my mess and about overcoming my mess and then being able to work my way towards my potential to whatever my mastery was going to be. And I want to help people with their mastery. What I the way I read it and um, I don't know if this works for everybody, but the thing I read first was your author's note, uh, which comes at the end of the book. And then I went back and started the book. And, you know, that to me, that helped me. It just helped me relate to you and all mm -hmm. the things that happened in your life. Um, but you mentioned that the seeds of the book came in a meeting with Harvey Dorfman in spring 1994. We're in 2020. Okay, that's a long time. So from I'll get to more of that stuff later. But when did you start the process of actually writing this book as, you know, as in its current form? So, in his current form was kind of about about the time about when COVID hit, and I thought, man, this is the time I'm gonna I'm gonna be staying at home. I'm gonna, um, you know, I'm gonna have a lot of free time. And I thought, man, th this is the time I've got to do it. Now we were planning on writing it, and I was planning on writing that book this year anyway. But when COVID hit, I said, this is the time. Let's dig in, and you know, um, we just got we we just got started, and we and we cranked this thing out and. And, uh, you know, it was it was a labor of love. I would tell you that I actually went through um, line by line, word by word, went through this book nine different times because I just wanted it. I wanted it to be right. I wanted it to be authentic. And uh, and I wanted to make sure that each piece was important because there were so many lessons with each section of this main character's life. The main character is Kat. She's driven. She's moody. She's angry. She's a 30-something single mom whose father was a famous baseball player. Um, the idea behind what's driving her, the relentless pursuit of success. But as you found out and we find out, that has a price. Why was it important for you to stress to people that, you know, in in athletics, we always talk about giving your all and, and having a goal and having your focus on that goal. And the successful ones never lose sight of that goal. But there comes a price in your story and in this story. Why was that part important to you? You know, well, one of the things, one of the things, Sweeney, is that, you know, you think about it and we always say and athletes always say that, you know, family's the most important and this and that. But when you're with your family, all you're, when you're in the season, all you're thinking about, you're eating, you're sleeping, you know, you're walking. Everything is about what you need to accomplish to become the best in the world at what you're doing. Look, not everyone's going to become the best in the world at what they do, but every athlete pursues it. And by pursuing it, it lands them the best version of themselves on and off the field. Well, 
off the feet. It's not a light switch. You can't just turn it off, man, because there's so much passion and there's so much driving that athlete. So, you know, there is a price and the price is, you know, um, you know, you, know, you, you, you kind of lose some relationships that you have. You kind of, you know, your family becomes that team and, and, that, and that focus. And a lot of times, you know, you'll see it a lot of times. You'll see it with a lot of guys that make a lot of money in business, but yet they might have broken families. They have broken relationships. So the book is about the book and, and the stories and the tools is about how to get in balance, but but at the same time, be out of balance. And people say, Todd, what are you talking about? And I say, well, wherever your feet are, just be there 100% and sell out to that moment. That's not easy to do. It takes practice. Matter of fact, all the tools, all the lessons, all the models in here that I got from my father, that I got from people like Tony LaRussa, Steedo Gaston, Dennis Eckersley, Ricky Henderson, Dave Winfield, Paul, all these champions, Mickey Mantle, Thurman Munson, Bobby Mercer, right? All, all the environments that I was in, I had a front row seat to champions, to how they excel, but not only how they excel, their preparation, but maybe more importantly, is what did they look like, act like, think like when they failed? And man, there is so much to learn from failure. But, um, you know, for me, it was practice and getting in balance. And because it's more than just the goal and the dream. It's about getting there and still being fulfilled, not being broken. It's a game that we have to work on on the inside of us. The inner game is what I was actually going to ask you about next. And there's a speech in this uh, book that comes from, uh, from Vince, the former pitcher, to his 10-year-old daughter. And it takes place in a stadium, and he just, you know, describes the inner game. I have a feeling that is almost lifted verbatim from a conversation you had. Uh, was it was 10-year-old you the, you know, the subject in that conversation? Yeah, you know what's funny is 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 my story inside of this book changes from cat to the son to the father, yeah. and it's all intertwined. And it's like, and it and it made it a really really difficult book for me to write because I kept changing. I actually in in my form, my story, my life kept changing the character form. Sometimes I was the son. And I was the son, and when he was speaking to his grandfather, it was really the son, for me, it was the son talking to my father. Yeah. Um, and then there were times where um, I, I was actually maybe playing the father, maybe to a group of, to an organization or whatever, and using tools that I learned and giving them now to my daughter. And, and so I was kind of intertwined through, throughout this whole book. Uh, a couple of themes here I want to get your take on. Just dive a little deeper in, in why it was meaningful to you in, in this part of the story. Uh, there's a saying that you keep coming back to, and that I think you said the Harvey Dorfman told you this in his original meeting with you. Well, let's go back. Let's, let's, let's go back to there. You mentioned how you'd been uh, in the big leagues for a few years already. You'd won a couple of World Series, yet you were very unfulfilled. You were an angry uh, not very happy person. And in the spring of 1994, you didn't say who, but you said a mentor of yours pointed you to Harvey Dorfman. Can you give a little and, and you know, tell people a little bit more about how that got set up and who he is, what he did for you? Yeah. So, um, you know, I got, you know, I, it was after the 93 World Series and I'd gotten home to, 
you know, I got home to Florida and, and, you know, when I, Sweeney, when I looked in the mirror, I, I didn't like the person looking back at me. Matter of fact, I despised that guy and I, I, I didn't like him. And, and it was the result of 12 years prior to that. I was 15. My little brother was 11. I gave him a bone marrow transplant. And, and, and because my marrow eventually put him into a coma that eventually took his life. Um, now, at that time, being 15, I was like traditionally sad. My little brother was taken away from me. But I also was hate. I had so much hate in me. I was so mad at the world. I was like, how unfair is this? He was only 11. And it was like my best friend was just taken away from me. And then I felt the guilt. And that became overwhelming because it was like, wow, it was my marrow that finished him off. And, and, and even though I, you know, even though that uh, if we step back from it, it's like, well, how could that be? But when you're 15, you, t- you took it all on. But the problem is I didn't heal it. See, the problem is I buried it. And, and I buried it in a place where I just hadn't forgiven myself. So the time that I met with Harvey was really because there was a guy that, you know, really became my mentor. His name was Dave Stewart, which was what you were talking about. And David just meant the world to me. It was, it was so funny how, how really, because I, 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 Dave didn't know this, but I've been watching Dave for years because it started on a hunting trip with my father. And my father said, Todd, he says, you know, you got to find someone in the game that you can mirror, that you can success leaves clues, become more like. And, and my father knew I was an emotional pitcher and anything could happen in a game. And if I lost control, you know, I would go across the, the line. It would cost us the ball game. So the result was, wasn't, a, wasn't a positive result, uh, all of my emotion. Well, and I said, yeah. And he said, well, I got a guy for you. And I said, well, who? <laughs> and he goes, you need to watch Dave Stewart because it doesn't matter whether he's up by 10 or down by 10 in a game. He never changes. You see, when you lose your emotions, the other team feeds off of that and it destroys you. So I began watching Dave and then in 93, we became teammates. I mean, it was a great story and it was kind of like, I mean, we became brothers right away, day one. And he meant so much to me and really became a mentor of mine and helped me through the game. So, you know, when I got home after the 93 World Series and, you know, you think about it, look, I'm 28 years old. I'm making millions of dollars. I'm living out my childhood dream. I grew up in Yankee Stadium. I'm a two-time world champion from the outside, man. It's like, this guy's got it all. The problem was on the inside, I was dark. Man, I, I had hate. I had guilt. I didn't like who I was. And uh, so I called Dave in the winter and I said, Dave, I said, I'm going to mention this guy's name. I want I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. He says, okay, I'm ready. I said, Harvey Dorfman. He said, call him now. I literally, I said, I got to go, Dave. I hung up the phone. I called Harvey. I said, Harvey, this is Todd Stottlemyre. Here's what Harvey said. I've been waiting on your call. I didn't know Harvey Dorfman even knew who I was. And, and he was like the big mindset guru in Major League Baseball, written all the books, worked with Hall of Famers. And I'm like, how does this guy even know? Who? And I said, man, I, I need help. He goes, I know. And I said, can we get together? And so we booked a meeting. We got together. We ended up spending 12 hours in a hotel room where we cried. We laughed. We hugged. I mean, it was crazy. And in the first hour, he asked me, he said, Todd, would you do it again? And I said, do what? He said, would you give your little brother that bone marrow transplant again? 
I was like, wow. I just broke down. And uh, he knew he had struck a chord with me. He'd done all his research on me. And I said, Harvey, I do it every minute of every hour of every day. And he said, well, let me ask you something, Todd. Didn't you already do it? And I said, yeah. He said, did you do everything you could do? And I said, yeah. He says, but you would do it all over again. You've already done everything you could do. He said, Todd, you didn't kill your little brother. It's time for you to let it go. And at that moment, man, we just embraced and it was, it was very emotional. And it was like he gave me permission to not be guilty anymore. It was like he gave me permission to understand I did everything I could and I wasn't going to be able to control or change the situation. And it was like liberating for me in a big way. The last hour, though, was life changing for me when he put me on a seven day challenge. And he said, listen, for the next seven days, you are not allowed to respond to your thoughts or your emotions. Every challenge you have over the next seven days that stirs you up, you're not allowed to respond. You're only allowed to document. He said, Todd, I want you to observe the way you're thinking and your thoughts. And I want you to observe your emotions. And I want you to document those thoughts and emotions because we're going to build you a tool chest on how, on how to stay in a positive state and how to take yourself from an emotional state, a negative state um, to a positive state so that you can not only perform on the field and dominate your space, but you can also perform off the field where you're having so much problems. And I was like, wow. And that was the making of the observer. And this story has been, I've been wrestling with this thing forever. And it's odd that I wrote it this year because you think about it, we've had COVID, we have had a political nightmare, we've had a race nightmare. And everywhere you look, what is there? There's people that are reacting to situations with hate and it doesn't, and look, when you have a knee-jerk reaction, when you're in the moment, it's really telling you who you are in your true form. And I knew in my true form, it was those emotional breakdowns. It was that hate and that guilt. That's what was really going on in my life, even though I was projecting something else outwardly. I had an inside mess that I had to fix. I'm telling you, as a country, we have an inside mess we need to fix it, man. And, and the tools and the tool chest, the models throughout this story came from world champions. But it also came from people like my father who left earth with no regrets. He lived a complete fulfilled life. My hero. And I'm like, man, I, every day I just strive to try to be more like him. Learn still, learn from his legacy because you know, it was like every bad day, he would find a way. My father would find a way to see the good in every single thing. And he was fulfilled with no regrets. And I was like, man, that's the life I want to live. The one my father lived. Your not father. the accolades, not the accolades, the mindset, the heart set of this. I want to I want to be more like him. So this is it. I told you privately, I'll tell you again, your father was one of my favorite people to cover uh, when I first started covering baseball, and uh, uh, I definitely miss seeing him around. There are a couple of things that I want to uh, touch on that are definite themes in this book that, again, as we talk about, this this is a fictional story, but it's really your story. So these themes are applicable to your life and, and probably to other people, too. 
one of the lessons uh, that I think is from that first meeting with Harvey. They can take your body, but they can't take your mind unless you give it to them. What does that mean? It means every time you emotionally and every time the guilt, the hate that would come up, right? And I would have these emotional outbursts. What I'm really telling people is where my mindset is, where my thoughts are, where my heart is, where my emotions are. And when you give that to an opposing team, they now have the advantage because they know exactly how you feel and how you think. Can I stop you for a second? Are there there, uh, instances that you can recall top of your head? Are there games where this happened that jumped to your head? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, it's like, um, you might be having a, a meltdown on the, I might be having a meltdown on the mound and, and, and why the meltdown or why the frustration and why am I throwing the rosin bag or why am I kicking the dirt? Because I have runners on first and third. See, and what they recognize is like, we got him. He's, he's, he's lost it. This is the time he'll make the mistakes because what you focus on grows. My father used to tell me all the time. I remember I called him when I was struggling so bad and it was really Harvey and my dad, the combination of this was like unbelievable uh, for me. And I remember I said, dad, I'm struggling. He goes, man, I see it. He goes, listen, he goes, three things, Todd. He goes, stay back, finish strong, think down. And he goes, go work on that in between starts. You'll dominate. I'm like, dad, I can't even get through the fifth inning. I don't need to dominate, man. I just need to do good. He said, listen, stay back, (laughs) stay back, finish strong, think down. You'll dominate. He goes, there's one other thing. I'm like, I knew it. I knew it couldn't have been that simple. He said, on the bill of your cap, I want you to write K-I-S-S. And I said, kiss? He said, yeah. He said, keep it simple, stupid. And I was like, okay, I got it. And he goes, now, when you have runners at first and third in the game and you start to feel yourself and you, in your mind, you start to kind of like you're focused on the wrong things. Emotionally, you're getting upset. Step off the mound. And this is what Harvey would tell me. Recollect. It's like, what do I need to think on? What, what do you need to do? Not what's been done. Not what's already out of your control. Not what, you know, so stay. It, it was like, keep your mind intact. Guard your mind. Don't show or express what you're thinking to other people. And, and my father said, do you know what stay back, finish strong, think down is? What it means? I said, no. He says, it means keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. He said he pulled it all together. He says, no matter what, just keep the game simple. I went out and I threw the best game of my career. I gave up the first hit in the eighth inning against the White Sox, threw a one-hit shutout, almost threw a no-hitter. And I'm like, wow. You see, and, and this whole mindset of guarding your mind, look, someone can destroy you physically, but they can't destroy you mentally unless you give them their mind unless you give them permission for you to respond negatively. Now you've given it to them. Now you give them a chance. You know, it's kind of like you get into an argument with someone. The what, how's, how do you calm the argument? How do you calm it? By being calm, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like, but what happens? Pretty soon people explode. Now they're fighting. Now they're battling, going back and forth. Don't we see a lot of that in our country today? Yeah. It's crazy, man. So one of the keys to figuring this out and learning from your own behavior is LSGT. Tell me about that. 
learn, study, grow, train. We learn from multiple, we can learn from our experiences, other people's experience, but you learn, the place you learn is because maybe you just failed at something, right? So, um, or you didn't, you weren't as good as you wanted to be. The study is, it's the, it's the premise of study my past performances. So it's like in everything we do, we study our past performances because if we'll study our past performances, opportunities will show up that we didn't see when we were in the heat of battle. Think about a quarterback in the NFL. Well, after he finishes, he goes off the field, grabs an iPad, and what's he doing? He's studying his past performances. And what does he see on the iPad? Man, that guy was open. I could have hit him. The next time he goes to the field, he has the reminder of studying the past performances. Hey, that guy's open again. Boom. And now you have a success. So learn from the failure. Study the past performances. And then grow is the G is create new strategies. And then take the new strategies to train. And the T stands for train. What's train? Take action. And what do you got to do? And it's not just take action. Push your action to the next failure. It's the evolution of growth. And if I push it to the next failure, I'm back in the learn phase. Okay. Now I got to study it. And now I got to re-strategize. I got to fix it. I got to make an alter. My father used to tell me, he said, Todd, you throw a fastball away from someone. They don't even flinch and they take it. Why wouldn't you throw another one? He, he goes, why would you change? He goes, make them change. Be reflective. Study. Study the hitter's past performance based on, it's, he called it reflective pitching. This is a reflection. Reflection is so big to growth. Well, and fear of failure plays into that too, I think, because I can't tell you how many times I heard Derek Jeter over the years say, you can't be afraid to fail. I'm not afraid to fail. And that's part of what you're talking about, I think, leading to growth and training in this example. Yeah, you know, fear is, uh, you know, that's the, that's the ultimate lie, right? And, 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 and if, you're, if you have fear of failure, you, you're timid, you'll hold back. And I love what Derek said because Derek would allow it. He'd let it all hang out. He'd go for it. And if I fail, I fail. And I learn. But when I fail, I learn. I get a chance to get better. See, failure is our greatest teacher's. Because every failure, the teacher's telling us exactly what we need to work on to get better. It's always giving us something to work on. That's why, that's why failure is so important. Because it's the lessons, it's the teachers that go along with it. But, but, fail, but fear, fear is like, um, you know, Dennis Eckersley probably trained me on fear better than anyone. He said when he would come into a game as a closer, he said he was like, he would have fear. And I was like, wow, what do you mean you're scared? You're, he goes, yeah, bro. he goes, I'd be scared to death sometimes. I'm like, man, I'm a starting pitcher. Don't tell me that. I got to hand the ball to you. <laughs> he goes, no. He goes, you don't understand, Todd. He said, listen, the more fear, because I didn't want to mess your game up. I didn't want to mess the game up for the starting pitcher. I didn't want to mess the game up for the team. So when I started to have these feelings or thoughts, I would take more aggression towards the fear. See, the problem is fear paralyzes people. It needs to propel you to want to take more action. And that's what Derek Jeter was saying. Listen, I don't, if I, for fear, if there's any time there's fear, I'm going to get more aggressive. I'm going to go for it more. I'm going to lay out more. There's a, um, there's a, a theory that I've kind of latched onto for a while now. I think 
part of what you have gotten into jumps into this. And one of the things I think is that there are so many athletes with talent and they don't all make it and there are different reasons for it. But I think a lot of times it comes down to the idea of the player deciding to be great. And I always Mm -hmm. say, you know, everybody's got the talent. At some point, the player has to decide for himself that he wants to be great, not just good, not just there, not just average. If you're going to be great, I mean, there are some that maybe it seems that they've overcome the obstacles a little easier in their life because of opportunity or natural talent. But for most others, there seems to come not maybe just a moment, but certain moments where you have to, in your head, say, I don't want to be just a professional. I want to be great. And I think a lot of those themes are wrapped up in what you were trying to to write about. Yeah, well, 1989, I faced it. And I just got sent down from the Toronto Blue Jays for the second time in the second consecutive year. And I was frustrated because, you know, my talent had taken me to a place, you know, and I was always talented and gifted and and, you know, all through middle school and high school and college, I was always the star of the team. And, and when I got into the minor leagues and worked my way to major leagues, I was like, wow, everyone here is great. <laughs> like, and there were people a lot better than me at the major league level. And, and then I got sent down after my first year. And then I got sent down again back to minor leagues after my second year. And I was vulnerable. I was ready to quit. I was like, because I was like, man, even if I make it back, Will I be good enough to stay? See, a lot of people get to the big leagues. Not a lot of people stay and actually create a career out of it. And I called my father and I had a long drive and I was driving back to Syracuse, New York. And I'll never forget pulling into the stadium. And I, there were so many times where I was like, man, am I, maybe the world's right. Maybe I'm not like my father because we've been told by the world all growing up, you're not like your dad. What are you going to do when you don't make it? And at this moment, all of that was coming back to me. And it's like, what if they're right? What if I'm not like my father? What if I can't make a career at this? And even if I get back, will I be good enough to stay? That's you think about all the negative way. That's so much negative that was occupying the space of my brain and my thoughts. And I kind of laid back and it was about six in the morning when I pulled into MacArthur Stadium. The sun was coming up. I'd driven all night to, uh, to, get to, to get to the stadium. I didn't have anywhere to stay. So I just went to the stadium, pulled in the parking lot, leaned my seat back, kind of resting and had my eyes closed. And I kind of leaned up and I was like, heck with this, man. I'm going all in. And if I fail, I'll fail in front of the world. But they're going to know I gave it everything I had. But if I win and I succeed, they're going to watch me for the next 10, 15 years. And it turned out to be, here's what I didn't know at that time. 30 days later, Sweeney, I got called back to Major League Baseball. Yeah. 30 days later, I was almost ready to quit. I almost walked away. Matter of fact, I was about that close to just saying, I'll go do something else. But it was 30 days later and then on to a 15-year career play on three world championship teams, be overpaid by tens of millions of dollars, (laughs) be surrounded by champions and hall of famers. And I would have missed all of that. If I would have walked away, if I would have quit, I don't even know what story I would tell you today. I don't even know what kind of conversation. I don't even know what book I could write to help other people. 
See, it was overcoming. It was constantly having to overcome. And the study of those lessons and the reflection of that, and then to have great mentors and coaches like my father around me, and like some of the great people that I got a chance to be around in Major League Baseball, it was, it was advantage Todd because I could learn from them and then go apply. So it was incredible. I have one more for you about the book that struck me. There's a, a sec, the kind of the emotional crux of this is uh, the letter that Kat writes, the Dear Cancer Letter. And she runs through the gamut that cancer has had in her life from recent revelations about her father, her best friend. Her story about a younger brother is exactly your story. You wrote it exactly as your story. Um, did you write such a letter? Is that, is that where this came from? Yeah, I, I apologize. Um, I did write that letter. I, I, I wrote that letter. Um, it was a few months after my father passed. And one of my dear friends called me with prostate cancer. And I was just like, wow. And I said, man, I'm here for you. And we talked daily and he went through the surgery and, and, and he has responded and done well. But you know, from my little brother and my, we, you know, it was a couple months earlier, we just, just buried my father. And, and now here we're a, a close friend of mine. And he's like, I got cancer. And I'm like, man, I'm so sick of this. And then, but I worked with him and we, we kind of, you know, I stayed on the phone with him a lot and supported him. And then about two months later, my mother-in-law got, bre- uh, about two months later, my mother-in-law got breast cancer. And I was like, and it just hit me. And I was like, my little brother, my father, my friend, my mother-in-law. And I sat down on the couch. I can, I can picture it perfectly today. I pulled out my journal and I basically wrote, Dear Cancer. And the ex- it's almost verbatim to the word what I wrote in my journal that day. And I was like, you know, and it was basically like, you know, you lied to me with my little brother. Like, you're not lying anymore. And, 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 and I wrote about forgiveness in that letter because I lived in the prison of my unforgiveness. And I said, because I've forgiven myself, I'm better suited to fight you and, and to battle and, and, uh, so for me, you know, cancer is one of those things that is going to be, you know, it's, it's, it's a war. It's, 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 it's a war that, that so many people, unfortunately, um, have gone through, are going through right now in this very moment. And, you know, so many times we look at our days and all the things that are going on in our life and, and we complain about 2020, but, you know, we complain about 2020, but yet I call my father's old doctor that was at Sloan Kettering, Dr. Neimer. And he says, it's the saddest thing I think I've ever witnessed in my life that people are losing their life to cancer with no loved ones around to be there in the hospital with them because of COVID. And I'm thinking, man, COVID's not that big a deal to me as it is to those people. So this is a war, unfortunately, so many of us in this country and world, not just me, um, but so many people have been affected by this crazy disease. But uh, we just got to keep fighting. We got to keep having the faith, and we got to keep we got to keep locking arms, pulling together, and finding a way. But 
on that given day, I wrote a letter to cancer because I was sick of cancer at that moment. I've got a couple of uh, baseball ones for you, if you don't mind. Uh, going through some games that they might not be happy memories for you, but they're they're incredibly entertaining, and I would like to take you th- take me through them for a little bit. Yeah. In in the day and age of social media, I think Game Four of the '93 World Series would have been yeah. insane. Uh, it's Phillies Blue Jays. 15-14 is the final. Uh, you and Tommy Green started this game. Both of you guys oh. knocked out early. I mean, you took a, like a header going into third base, I think, right? And yeah. you come up with a bloody chin. There's all kinds of stuff happening in this ball game. What do you think about? Me and Tommy and Green probably pitched, both of us probably pitched the worst games of our <laughs> lives. In the biggest stage of the world, right? On the baseball world, anyway. It's the biggest stage in the baseball world is the World Series. And and to perform, you know, that bad. You know, it's funny you mentioned this social media. I'd, I'd have like 10 million followers. But because of that game, 9 million of those followers would, wouldn't like me. Oh, and there'd <laughs> but, be a gif uh, of you diving into third base and, and, yeah, and a headshot so, of you coming up with that bloody little I had, goatee. I had so much emotion going into that game. And, you know, Mayor Rendell had challenged me in the pregame deal with – you know, I could hit this guy and he was going, kind of going back and forth and it become a rant through the media. And I remember that night, my father, cause my father was in Philly with me and he's like, and the next morning and I was like, he could tell, he says, man, you didn't sleep much. I said, nah, he said, listen, cause I'd done the, uh, the pregame interview that, you know, the day before. And he said, listen, he got you. And Remember when I said they can take your body, but they can't take your mind. I gave my mind to the mayor, to the media, uh, how I was thinking. I thought I, I was, by the time I got to the game, I was so emotionally worn out from expending so much mental negative energy on something that didn't matter. And it was a lesson, man. And it was ultimately what drove me to want to call Harvey because I'd had enough because I knew I was better than I was performing. And, and, uh, but, and then, you know, that, that time about, you know, head first slide, or I should say chin first slide <laughs> into, into third base. And, you know, just, uh, you know, one of those deals where I was trying to do something, probably uh, trying to do too much uh, because of all the emotions wasn't a smart baseball play. I, I look back on it now. I just laugh and, and, uh, but, at the, at the same time, it's like, I don't regret any of that. I'm thankful for it because it, it helped me get better. And because of it, it led me to call Harvey. And because of that, I had some great years in Oakland and St. Louis and Texas and Arizona. Without it, I might not have ever climbed that hill. I needed something dramatic to happen in my life to get me to change. And I was like, I got to the point after that, I've had enough. I'm better than this. And here's where it was hard. It's hard. It's uncomfortable to say to someone, I need help. And I needed help. It's funny you say that because that's the last game you pitched before this meeting with Harvey. That's the last game you pitched in this series. If you had thrown seven scoreless, you, you might not get to that point where you're meeting Harvey. None of that happens. 
I would have probably stayed in that prison of unforgiveness at least for another year or another two years. And, and here's what's unfortunate. See, the better that I would have performed on the field, um, um, then maybe ultimately it would have never led me to that right. meeting. Everything happened exactly the way it was supposed to. And it happened, you know, I believe that it was on, a, on, a, on the right course. But when we look back to the things that happened to us, a lot of times those things that were struggle, my setbacks, all of those things that seem like the worst thing in the world at the time, isn't it funny that as you come out of those, it's the greatest thing that had to happen to you to get you to do something and it helped make you who you are today. And you look back and it's like, I'm thankful for that game now. I'm thankful for, for losing my emotions because it led me to becoming more. The next one I want to ask you about, and I apologize because this isn't a very happy memory for you. That's okay. No, no, it's all good. The, I um, remember all the... <laughs> the, um, the 1996 NLCS, you're with the Cardinals then. The Cardinals have a three games to one lead on the Braves. Now, I'm curious, not necessarily the result, but the mental gymnastics you're playing because on Sunday, the Yankees have closed out the Orioles and have clinched the American League pennant. Your father is the pitching coach for the Yankees and they are going to the World Series. You take the mound on Monday with a three games to one lead with a chance to go meet your dad in the World Series head to head. It was not a good result. Five runs in the first, uh, you end up losing, you end up pitching a couple of batters into the second inning, 14 nothing. The Braves end up winning three straight to set up the Yankees and the Braves. But I'm curious from a mental gymnastics standpoint, how much are you thinking of the idea of pitching your team to the World Series to face your dad? Yeah, you know what's crazy is that series started out where the Braves won game one. Um, I pitched game two. Uh, against Maddox, um, we won that game, and then we went on to win three straight. And you're right, and, I, and I'm going to tell you, uh, prior to me pitching um, game five, my father and I had a conversation. He was like, close it out, man. And, um, and you know what was crazy was the last time the Cardinals and the Yankees faced each other in the World Series was 1964, and my father was a pitcher on the Yankees. Yep. Now – now he's a coach on the Yankees and, and I'm on the Cardinals. And I'm like, this is like, this is not, this is going to happen. See, because I, I know the baseball gods, they want this to happen. So, but when I went out there for, for game five, we had a, we had a mm, kind of a crazy first inning. There was some mishaps in that inning and, and, it, and then it just started this avalanche. And, and um, you know, it was like, it was as if we'd lost our mojo. And it's not like we lost concentration, our focus, our intensity, where we were. And, and we didn't, it's not like we knew what we, it's not like we didn't know what was at stake because we did. And, and we got prepared for every game just like the other ones and this and that. But it was as if we couldn't do anything right. And it was as if everything they did was right. But what was weird about that is the three games prior to them winning their three games, our three games, they, they had to have felt the same way. They won the first game and then everything went our way. Yeah. I mean, literally everything. And then just the opposite happened and we couldn't stop the momentum. And momentum is a funny thing because I always say momentum is 
is up to the starting pitcher the next day. Yeah. It doesn't really carry over. But it was just like, man, game after game, inning after inning. And, and if there was one thing I could change, I would love to change that story. I would love to say, hey, we would have gone on and me and my father would have been in opposite dugouts. There would have only been one other thing greater than that, and that would have been to share the same uniform yeah. wearing a, in a World Series. But that would have been the greatest at that time. So if there was one story I wish I could change how it was written, I would love to rewrite that story. I don't regret it. I just, But it would be cool to change it. You had an opportunity to end up getting that head-to-head meeting a couple of years later in the playoffs when you got traded to Texas. Yankees and Rangers, division series. Listen, it's it's no there's no shame in losing to the 98 Yankees, and you only lost 2 nothing that day. But that was a juggernaut, um, and you pitched game one against David Wells. What do you remember about leading up to that with your, you know, knowing that your dad is there and that you're going to be sharing that field for the next several days? Well, you know, it was crazy because um, it was one of the better games I pitched in the postseason. I threw a complete game shutout and and I give up five hits that day. And and um, you know, they one of the runs that that was uh, first and third with two outs. Yeah. Um, and and they they ran a first and third play on us where they got the guy at first place to take off because they knew Pudge would throw down to second base. And actually Zimmer ended up calling the play. (laughs) He goes, listen, that guy will throw to second base. We can steal this run and we might not get too many runs today. And they sure enough, uh, they stole the run. And then Chad Curtis of, of all the people on that Yankee club, Chad Curtis actually knocked in a run, but I tipped my hat to him because, you know, he hit a pitch, got an RBI base hit, but uh, um, you know, it was one of the better games that I pitched, but I, here's what I'll tell you. I remember, um, I remember being in the dugout prior to going to the bullpen to warm up for that. And I thought, man, and, and everyone was, it was like the stadium was already sold out. Everyone was already Yankee fans were already in their seats yeah. and they were already starting their chance. And, but I had this calming force over that come over me like unbelievable because it was like, man, I was so focused, not on my father, but what I had to do to compete against this not good team by the way this great team and I was so mentally locked in but I said to myself I'm not gonna go to the bullpen and I'm not I'm gonna hit the top step the exact same time my father and Wells do so I sat in the dugout you know over there at third base and I kept looking and I'm like come on guys let's go man we gotta warm up and then here they came they finally they hit the top step I hit the top step I said magic and the stadium erupted. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> why did I wait for them? Right? And, and in the old stadium, you know, you go out to the bullpen and the bullpens are ones above the other, right? Yeah. So you're walking out and it's like, and it's as we're walking out and then I look at Wells and I'm like, I'm the underdog. He's expected to win. The Yankees had just won more games than anyone in history. And I'm like, I got you tonight, man. Like, and, and, and I just kind of like tipped my hat to my dad. And it was like, and at that moment, it was like, I was so locked in. And then, you know, like I, I still remember the, you know, the fourth, fifth inning, we had bases loaded, no, no outs and Wells, you know, he, guys kept popping up in the infield and he kept finding his way out of it. And, and I, I kept telling the guys, listen, they're not getting any more guys. They're not getting any more runs. All we got to do is get three runs. We're winning this game. 
And I had everyone on the on in the bench and the dugout during the game. We had the feeling we were going to break out because I was I was pitching for a Rangers team that was used to scoring nine ten runs a game. Yeah, I was like, man, we're we're gonna we're gonna have a big inning. I'm gonna win five to two, six to two, seven to two. It was never even a thought. And and then you know Wells got out, kept getting out of it, and then. I think Mendoza came in and then of course, you know, they shut us out and using their bullpen, but uh, it was a great game. I, I knew I, I was proud after that game. I wasn't happy yeah. because we didn't win and it's all about winning. It's about the result, but I was proud because, you know, there were a lot of ob- obstacles that could have gotten in the way. My father's in the other dugout at Yankee stadium. I grew up here. He's an icon. He's a legend here. Here I am. I'm pitching game one. I'm pitching game one against my first roommate in professional baseball. Oh, David. Right. Yeah, that's right. And we played together. All of these obstacles in the prior years, pre-Harvey Dorfman, yeah. might have gotten to me. But you see, I guarded my mind and I stayed focused on what I needed to stay focused on. And that was a finding a way to get Yankee hitters out. And a lot of times, you know, it's funny, I'll watch a game and I'll see a starting pitcher start to unravel. And I think to myself, I wonder what story is going on inside of his mind. And if he only knew he could change that story and that state and that focus instantly and reattack the hitters again. There's one other memory, Todd, that I have that the more I think about it is pretty special. It doesn't involve a game you pitched. In 2001, you were injured. You were with the Diamondbacks. I rem- and I can't remember which game it was, but I remember walking into the press entrance at Bank One Ballpark, um, and it was adjacent to the players' parking lot. So I think you and your dad had driven in together. Yeah, to, yeah. To what? So I think I saw you know Mel get out of the car, and I kind of put two and two together and recognized that that was you. And I thought that that was kind of a cool moment. I mean, you were not directly involved in the series being injured. Um, but just going to the ballpark with your dad for a World Series game, uh, and you're on opposite sides, but not necessarily competing there. That's just a memory I had, and I didn't know what you remembered about that 2001 World Series together. Uh, it was really cool, actually, because, you know, I knew in June um, that I was done for the season. And... Um, you know, I was waiting the game. I had a nerve, long thoracic nerve had gone dead on me. And we were kind of waiting for it to, to come back. And, and I couldn't even raise my arm, you know, for, for, you know, for the first couple months. And it started in spring training. So I hadn't even pitched an inning all year. And in June, we made the decision, like, let's just go get surgeries, fix it all, come back in 02. And, uh, and then this is the year the, the Diamondbacks get to the World Series. And, and I was, like, so grateful and thankful i'm like man thank god i got to play in two world series in toronto because if this was my first one and i was missing it i would have been like wow but um you know it was it was it was it was it was different because i was kind of like an assistant coach Uh, bobby welch was our pitching coach and he was like hey todd he says i need some help and this and that and and i would work with the young young kim our closer and and uh but it was funny because I still felt like I was competing because I was with Bob Melvin, who was the bench coach. And we would, we would stay focused on my dad and we were trying to steal my dad's signs. So my dad's <laughs> giving signs in the deal. And I'm like, here I am 
in a World Series, opposite dugouts, and I'm trying to steal my father's signs. I mean, this is awesome, man. So I was trying to find a way to contribute, but, you know, I'd pick my dad up. We would go to dinner and this and that. And, you know, we might talk for a second about the game, but then it was just about, you know, when the season was over, we're going to go steal head fishing. We're going to go hunting. We're going to go do these things together. And it was normal father, son, but, you know, uh, listen, you know, my feeling for my father, you know, he was my hero. He was my coach. He was my mentor. Uh, he was my working partner. He was also dad when he needed to be dad, but he was also like when me and my brother were with Emil Jr., it was like it was like three brothers together. And we just had so much fun together, um, you know, off the field and in re- everyday life. And and he was just he was such an influence on us. And we're so grateful for him and his legacy. So um, going to a game together and, and going to a World Series of game, uh, game together, those are great memories. And, and I've got some, I got some unbelievable memories that I still get to share with people today. And, and every time I share, I just, I'm keeping my father's legacy very close to my heart and he continues to live on. Todd, I have just one more for you. You know, coaching runs pretty deep in your family. Your father was a legendary pitching coach. Your brother's a pretty good pitching coach with the Mariners. Now with the Marlins, they had themselves a pretty good year. Um, Mental conditioning is really what we've been talking about, and that is a very big part of professional sports now. Almost every team employs some sort of mental skills program, coaches. Is that an area where you see yourself contributing at the professional level? You've written a book to help people, uh, and you made it relatable to every uh, to everybody, to people in all walks of life. But is the mental skills coaching in professional sports, baseball or other sports, something that you are interested in pursuing? You know, what's funny is I'd love to do it. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've never been approached. I've never put my hat in the ring. I've never, you know, I've never contacted any teams and just said, Hey, you know, let me tell you a story and let me show you how I can help. you know, especially starting pitchers or, 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 or a pitching staff, you know, um, you know, me and my brother, we talk a lot and, and I just kind of, you know, throw ideas at him sometimes and, and, uh, you know, but he, he is doing a great job. You know, I've been, it's funny is I've been coaching CEOs and companies and speaking and doing different things. And, and I've had companies bring me in. I've been working with a real estate, one of the largest real estate companies in the country uh, all year this year, training their professionals. I'm, I've been working with leaders and organizations. Uh, you know, my love is the game. And the reason I didn't stay in the game is you know, at that time, I just decided that my family was young. I wanted to be home with my kids. I wanted to have dinner with them. I wanted to put them to bed. I wanted to take them to school. And, you know, I've never missed my school or the kids' events. I got five beautiful children. And, and I've been fortunate that my life allows me to capture all their events. But, you know, coaching and the mindset game kind of and being able to give that to uh, a major league team or major league athletes or the people in need or, or athletes that are wanting to find an edge and get better from the mental side of the game. What Harvey gave to me, I would love to pass through to a young guy, you know, and if that ever works out someday, then it works out. And if it doesn't, that'll be okay too. So either way, but I would, man, it would be so much fun. Um, and, uh, you know, because it's obviously, you know, it's a different perspective today, as I sit here today that I had them going through it, but I'm so relatable because everything they're going to go through, I probably went through 
or a version of it or had a teammate that went through it. And I had to overcome so much, you know, and uh, that's the thing that makes me the most proud about the book is, is because I had to overcome, but it doesn't mean that I've reached the destination. I always tell people I'm so unfinished and there are other mountains to climb and, and I uh, just look forward to those experiences. My thanks again to Todd Stottlemyer. The Observer is available this month anywhere books are sold, available for pre-orders at toddofficial.com. You can also find other bonus materials and videos from Todd on that site. His father, Mel, one of my favorites in my 20 years covering the New York Yankees, and he is dearly missed. His brother, Mel Jr., has been a guest here as well and had himself quite a season as pitching coach of the Miami Marlins in 2020. If you're new here, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive to hear great conversations with NBC's Peter King, Tampa Bay Rays owner Stuart Sternberg, the Emmy-winning director of Saturday Night Live, Don Roy King, and many, many more. Head to Radio.com or Apple Podcasts, subscribe, review, and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.